So we are ready to begin. Let me start us off with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you for the gift of this technology that enables us to be together yes. virtually, even though we can't be together in person. Lord, we thank you for this book and for your having inspired C.S. Lewis to write it. We pray that you would help us as we dig into this book to learn more and more that would help us to grow in our faith and knowledge of you, that we might be transformed more and more into the image of Christ, and we might be a blessing to this hurting world. We thank you again and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, uh, we are going to launch into the second chapter uh, of this really wonderful, uh, actually the third chapter of this exposition of what Christians believe that Lewis has been doing. Uh, but before that, we're going to do our verse and then we'll do a quick little review. So I wanna encourage you to say this verse from Second Peter with me. Uh, it's such a rem remarkable reminder of the many, many gifts that there are for our faith in Christ Jesus himself. So let's say this together. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And part of what is so miraculous about this is this idea that we who are formed of clay can become partakers in the divine nature because of what Christ has done for us. That is something for which we can all give thanks. So I wanna welcome everyone tonight. I wanna to say a special welcome to our new folks. We have new people joining every week, either on Zoom or through the video or on the podcast um, who are from all over the world. I was feeling sorry for myself this week because it was so cold in Charleston until I got an email from someone uh, who is listening to the podcast in Finland. And that made me realize that it is probably much warmer in Charleston than it is in Finland. So uh, welcome to all who are uh, participating through whatever medium. Just a reminder for the people who have been around for a while and for the people who are new, that there are a couple of different ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach where you just show up when you feel like it and you don't read anything. You may fall asleep or read a book or whatever during class. Um, there are no expectations and we are just delighted to have you for that. Or you can snorkel where you find a few things that really interest you and you wanna go a little bit deeper in those. You might actually click on some links in the email. Uh, you might read some articles. You might go a little bit deeper or you might be a scuba diver where you invest yourself in all of the different aspects of the class, the extra resources, the extra books, the extra articles, all of that. But wherever you are on that continuum, I am just delighted that you are here. And I know that God will use uh, the time that you invest to be a blessing. 
And just a reminder as well, uh, that if you are not on my email list, uh, where we send out the class summaries and links each week, um, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email and I will get you signed up for uh, our list. So uh, again, just how to read this book. If you're new, try reading it out loud, one chapter at a time. Don't sit down and try to read the whole book at once. Uh, as I'm fond of saying, it will make your head explode. Uh, there's way too much material, way too many big thoughts going on uh, to do that. So you wanna be able to chew on it over the course of the week. And again, a reminder about the C.S. Lewis Doodle, which is a great resource for helping to unpack some of this material. So tonight, uh, we have some music that relates to what we're gonna be talking about. And I think some of you might know what this is tonight. So listen sharply. And if you know what it is, uh, you can try to chat and let me know that you have an idea. All right, somebody has figured it out, but I'm gonna keep playing a little more. Okay, so uh, we got the correct guess that that is Allegri's Miserere, uh, which is Psalm 51 sung in Latin. And Psalm 51, as you probably know, is the great Psalm of David, the Psalm of Repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, blot out my iniquities. It's all about forgiveness of sins, which is one of the things that's talked about in uh, this chapter tonight. But that particular piece of music is one of the most beautiful pieces of choral music that there is. And it's traditional for Ash Wednesday, which is getting ready to come up. But the interesting thing about that music is it was written in the 17th century. And the only place that it was allowed to be sung was in the Pope's Chapel, the Sistine Chapel. And they didn't allow the music to be written down so they could keep it just for that. 
But in 1770, a child prodigy at the age of 14 came to a service in the Sistine Chapel where that was sung and he went home and wrote down the entire piece from memory, all of the different vocal parts together. And that young man was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And uh, he later won an award from the Pope for doing that. But I'll send you the link in the email. It is a glorious piece of music uh, that is particularly appropriate as we get ready to think about the season of Lent. So quick review of our context. Uh, we are in England in wartime. Uh, the BBC is a target of the Luftwaffe. Lewis is going at the risk of his life to record these talks. Uh, Jimmy Welch at the BBC is the one that keeps making them happen and engage the second series. We talked about the RAF and how they helped Lewis prepare. And this first book entitled Right and Wrong is a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe is Lewis trying to help people get to the point of realizing that they need God, that they have gone wrong, that they are uh, not on the right side of the power that made the universe. And so he tries to get at that, not starting with Jesus, but starting with the reality and the facts of the universe that all people can observe. So he talks about the law of human nature, where the humans know this law, we know what we should do, but we break it. He says that the standard in chapter two is different from the two things, different sets of moral ideas, where he says, for instance, uh, English morality in World War II is better than Nazi morality. But the standard that measures those can't be either of them. It has to be something different. He talks about the reality of the law, how men do behave versus how they ought to behave. And he contrasts that with a rock following the law of gravity. It has no choice. It just drops. You couldn't throw a rock up in the air and have it take off like a kite. It's just impossible. It has no choice. But we have a choice about the law of human nature. We can do the right thing or we can choose not to do the right thing. So Lewis says this is something that's beyond just us. It must come from somewhere. We didn't invent it. We know we ought to obey it. So there must be a mind or a power behind it. And he says, it's only after you've realized that there's a real moral law and a power behind that law and that you've broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power, it's only after that that Christianity begins to talk. Uh, as Jesus said, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. And if you don't think you're a sinner and you don't need to be forgiven, the gospel might be interesting, but it's not really good news. So a couple of implications out of that first book, this quotation about the urgency of the mission of the church and for each one of us who are Christians in a time of uncertainty and questioning, which could certainly describe our culture today, it's the responsibility of the church to declare the truth about God and his relation to men. It has to expound the Christian faith in terms that can be easily understood by ordinary men and women and to examine the ways in which that faith can be applied to present day society during these difficult times. And part of that, uh, and Lewis talks about this in many of his other works, is for Christians to be very aware that Jesus's chief opponents were not the sinners, 
but the self-righteous Pharisees, and that we in the church need to get over our tendency to be prideful and judgmental and embrace a gospel humility and self-forgetfulness that focuses on the needs of others. Lewis also talks about the power of story and beauty and transcendence when you have a culture that's gone off the rails and doesn't want to listen to the gospel, sometimes the power of story and the power of beauty and the power of transcendence and holiness can get uh, around what he called the watchful dragons of the mind. So the second book about what Christians believe uh, was developed during the darkest part of World War II, when the Germans were masked getting ready to invade, uh, the United States had not entered the war, Britain was standing alone. That's when Lewis wrote these chapters and he began delivering them shortly after that uh, in 1942, right after Pearl Harbor had happened and the US had entered the war. So the first thing he talks about in the second book is the rival conceptions of God. And he talks about how as Christians, you don't have to believe that every other religion is totally, totally wrong. He says that in other faiths, there are echoes of the truth of Christianity, but that none of them gets it right. Only the Christian faith gets it completely right. He also says that atheism is too simple, that any thinking person looking at the evidence of the complexity of nature and of the human body, and as even Darwin said, the complexity of vision and the human eye, it is hard to believe that there is nothing out there and it all happened by accident. Pantheism versus the Christian view of God. Pantheism is the idea that God's in everything. There's no such thing as right or wrong. There's just preferences. We see that flowering all over the place in our culture. No one uses the word pantheism, but that is exactly what it is. So Lewis says the big question is if God made the world and God is good, why has it gone wrong? And we're gonna to get to that a little bit more in the chapter tonight. But Lewis said for him, his argument for a long time when he was an atheist, which was for most of his young adult life until he was around 30, was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But one of his friends, um, Tolkien and Dyson and Barfield pushed on him about this. And he realized, okay, how did I get an idea of what's just and unjust? If I have this idea of what's just, there must be some way that I figured that out. So as he says, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out it has no meaning, just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. So this is also uh, that whole idea of myths and types and shadows uh, that we'll talk about a little bit more tonight. The idea that God has littered creation and human creation and stories and myths with things that point toward him. Gods that die on behalf of people, uh, self-sacrifice, mercy, beauty, all of these things that are really quite remarkable. Uh, and then in the scriptures themselves, the way that all the way back in the book of Genesis, things begin pointing toward the salvation that God is going to perfect 
in Jesus Christ. And Lewis talks also about absolute truth versus relativism and how important it is to hold on to the idea that there is such a thing as real truth. So last week, we looked at chapter two, the invasion. And to just go quickly over the points of that, he said, one of the problems is that people who want to attack Christianity often have very simplistic views that are wrong about what Christians actually believe. And Lewis says that real things in his experience, when you look at the universe, real things are not simple. They look simple, but they are not. And he uses the example of a table, that you look at a table and it looks like it's just some pieces of wood nailed together. But he said, when you start thinking about all of the elements that are involved, about the atoms that are involved, about the mysterious force of positive and negative valence and all those kinds of things that hold matter together, that in fact, just a table is something that's incredibly complex. He also talks about how very often detractors of Christianity put forth overly simplistic straw man versions. That's not the real Christian faith or what any real Christian believes. It's something that's an idea of Christianity that they make up because it's easy to tear down. Lewis then goes on to say that reality is usually odd. It's not neat, it's not obvious, it's not what you would expect. Reality, in fact, he says, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. And one of the examples he uses of that is just the whole idea of the incarnation. Who would ever make up a religion where the God who made everything chooses to be born as a helpless baby in poverty in a backwater province of the Roman Empire? That is crazy. But Lewis says that's so crazy that it gives it the ring, the smell, if you will, of truth. He also talks about goodness and badness, that we can make ourselves, and you see plenty of examples of people who make themselves be good because they know they ought to. But it's very rare to find somebody who wants to be bad just for the sake of being bad. They may want the things they can get by being bad, but just the sake of people thinking they're bad is not usually a motivation. He then talks about intelligence and will when he's thinking about this dark power that he says it's so strange uh, if you're new to Christianity to see how much the New Testament talks about the dark power. And Lewis says existence, intelligence, and will are clearly attributes the dark power has, but those attributes in themselves are good. So if the dark power is wholly evil, which is the view of dualism, then how could it have existence, intelligence, and will? So even to be bad, he must borrow or steal from the good power. So this is part of Lewis's argument that evil is a parasite. It's not something that exists originally on its own. Evil can only be defined in comparison with the good. And then he talks again about the dark power, the power that is behind death and disease and sin and all of the myriad pains and things that go wrong in the world. And he says the difference between Christianity and dualism is that Christians believe this dark power was created by God, was good when he was created, and then went wrong. More on that in tonight's chapter as well. 
And then he has this great way of summing up the chapter. He says, enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and our laziness and our intellectual snobbery. And as we said last week, this is a great truth. Lewis is pointing out the fact that for a lot of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, they view church as an optional activity. That is a concept unknown to the New Testament where being part of the body, being part of corporate worship and teaching is what it means in large part to be a Christian. And he says, this is part of Satan's plot that if he can keep us from going to church, even virtually, so we're not exposed to the word of God and the Holy Spirit working in the body of Christ, we can be led astray. So again, implications of this whole idea that there's no such thing as right or wrong or evil, it's just choices and preferences. That is pantheism in sheep's clothing and something we need to resist. And we need to be rem reminded constantly that being at church, even when we're tired and we don't feel like going, or we've got 400 other things to do, it's important. We have to open the window. And when we open that window, the breeze, the breath of God through the Holy Spirit and his God-breathed scripture can blow its refreshing coolness over our souls. So that brings us to tonight's chapter, chapter three. I haven't been harping on reading the chapters. I haven't wanted to make anyone feel guilty or like I was being a taskmaster. And particularly if you're on the beach, don't feel guilty. It's all good, just soak up those rays. But if you're gonna read a chapter, this is the one to read. This is a really, really important chapter. And we could go on for hours tonight, which we're not gonna do, uh, but I commend to you to chew on this chapter. So Lewis starts off by talking about the dark power and God's will. And he says, Christians then believe that an evil power has made himself for the present, the prince of this world. And of course that raises problems. Is this state of affairs in accordance with God's will or not? If it is, he is a strange God, you will say. And if it is not, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? For those of you who are theologians out there, this is the classic conundrum that's called theodicy. Uh, but don't worry about that if you're on the beach. Uh, it's basically the idea that if God is good, then why is there so much that's wrong in the world? And why doesn't God fix things? And when we look around the world today, we certainly see a lot of things that we can't figure out why a good God would allow them. We're in the midst of this pandemic. There's all sorts of political and social upheaval, not just in our country, but in others as well. And so we look at that last sentence and think, if this is God's will, he is a strange God. And Lewis is going to help us lean into that. One of the things I love about Lewis's work is that when there are things that are hard 
or difficult or puzzling, he believes that that's where by leaning in, we can get closest to the heart of God. So he then talks a little bit about the nature of authority. He says, but anyone who has been an authority knows how a thing can be in accordance with your will in one way and not in another. It may be quite sensible for a mother to say to the children, I'm not going to go and make you tidy the schoolroom every night. And this is a great example for the way things are working during COVID if you've got small children. A lot of people do these days have a schoolroom at home. I'm not going to make you go and tidy the schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying in the grate. That's the fireplace. That is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy. But on the other hand, it is her will which has left the children free to be untidy. The same thing arises in any regiment or trade union or school. You make a thing voluntary and then half the people do not do it. That is not what you willed, but your will has made it possible. It is probably the same in the universe which leads him to a further expansion of this about God and free will. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go either wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, robots, of creatures that worked like machines would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. I think Lewis is doing a brilliant job here of explaining this. One of the analogies that some people commenting on Lewis have used, uh, that's an analogy that didn't exist in Lewis's day, but if like me, uh, you grew up in the 60s and 70s, you will remember a whole generation of toy dolls that had a little string on the back that you could pull. And they would say various things, some of which actually were kind of disgusting uh, when you pulled the string. But they also had some dolls where you could pull the string and the little doll would look up at you and say, I love you. So cute. And you know, at this time of pandemic, there's so many people who are feeling lonely. So maybe what the government should do is just buy a whole parcel of those dolls with the little string and send out because then everybody would feel really loved, right? You get a little doll and you pull the string and it looks at you and says, I love you. The problem is 
we know it's a fake. It's a fake. The doll doesn't love us. The doll doesn't even have a personality. We're the one that made it do that. It means nothing. It is a cheap, fake, poor substitute for what's real. And that's what Lewis is saying here, that God didn't want to make creatures that were like that doll with a little string. He wanted to make creatures that had the free will to choose to love him or to reject him. Because only with that freedom can there be such a thing as real love and joy that comes as a result of that. So the risk God took, of course God knew what would happen if they, we, used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. Perhaps we feel inclined to disagree with him. There's that old sin from the Garden of Eden. If you eat of the, knowledge, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then you will be like God, which means you will be God in your own eyes. So we want to tell God maybe this wasn't such a great idea. But there's a difficulty about disagreeing with God. He is the source from which all your reasoning power comes. You could not be wrong. You could not be right and God be wrong any more than a stream can rise higher than its own source. When you are arguing against God, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It is like cutting off the branch that you are sitting on. If God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, that is for making a live world in which creatures can do real good or harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it, it is worth paying. When we have understood about free will, we shall see how silly it is to ask as someone once asked me, why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? The better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, then the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be both better and worse. A child, better and worse still. An ordinary man, still more so. A man of genius, still more so. A superhuman spirit, best or worst of all. And I want to just pause here for a moment and ask you to reflect on how very true that is. People that are enormously gifted have the power to do great good, but they also have the power to go very wrong and cause great destruction. And it reminds me of that old line in Spider-Man 2, uh, which is a great movie to watch if you haven't watched it. It is a parable an allegory of Christ in so many ways. But there's that line in there, with great power comes great responsibility. And that is certainly true for Christians. That's the whole idea of stewardship. But I want to just think a little bit about this idea about how a really gifted person who can do great good, if they go wrong, can do real harm. And again, I want to reference the Lord of the Rings, which I very much encourage you to read if you haven't. 
If you don't want to read all of it, then watch the three movies because Tolkien, Lewis's friend who helped lead him to faith in Christ, does an absolutely brilliant job of illustrating this principle in a number of characters. Particularly, there's a character called Saruman, who was one of the great wizards, one of the most brilliant and gifted creatures in all of what Tolkien calls Middle Earth. But Saruman begins to be corrupted. And when he becomes corrupted, he goes so far wrong that he almost causes the end of the world. And it is only because of his great gifts that he is able to wreak so much havoc. But then there are other people in the story, like Galadriel, um, the elven queen, who uses her great powers for good, who resists the temptation to use them for evil or for her own aggrandizement. And those kinds of stories are rooted in this truth that Lewis is expressing here. Let me just say this again. Why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? The better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is, then the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it will be if it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be both better and worse. A child better and worse still. An ordinary man still more so. A man of genius still more so. A superhuman spirit best or worst of all. So this risk of free will is the key to understanding so many things. You see all through scripture, the free will that is given to people to obey God or to reject him. And one of the interesting things that you see, and this goes back to David and Psalm 51 that we referenced in that musical composition, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. And you think about that and you look at the fact that David caused Uriah the Hittite to be killed, that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He did all sorts of other things that were really bad because he was very gifted. He was also the one who did things that were beautiful, who wrote many, many of the Psalms that we have, who became the greatest king that ever existed in Israel's history. And yet what made him a man after God's own heart is that when he realized he had done wrong, he repented and went back to God and said, there is no health in me, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It is a beautiful thing. And that coming back is the same sort of thing that we see in the parable of the prodigal son. And it's this whole idea that freedom gives us the opportunity to love and to do things that are spectacular with God's help, but it also enables us when we go wrong to have the freedom to turn around, to repent that great Greek word metanoia, to change our mind to about face and come back to God, which brings that great joy of uh, reunion with him. So then on to how did the dark power go wrong? Here, no doubt, Lewis says, we ask a question to which human beings cannot give an answer with any certainty. A reasonable and traditional guess based on our own experiences of going wrong can, however, be offered. The moment you have a self at all, there is a possibility of putting yourself first. 
wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan, and it was the sin he taught the human race. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, Adam and Eve, was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all we would call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. And we see that so much in our culture now. We've talked about the epidemic of diseases of despair because people are trying all the things that the world says will make you captain of your own soul, where you can craft your own happiness. But the problem is they don't work. So Lewis goes on, and this is one of Lewis's most brilliant quotations in this chapter about the quest for happiness outside of God. The reason why this quest for happiness outside of God can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That is a truth that is worth contemplating. And it's a reminder with a, an analogy not as good as what Lewis says, but thinking about free will, imagine that you won the lottery and the prize instead of money was a $200,000 special edition Porsche sports car. And you loved that car and you took good care of it. But then one day it was running rough and it wouldn't quite go up to speed and perform as well as usual. And so you thought to yourself, you know, when I'm exercising and I feel run down, the thing that really helps me is to drink a giant Gatorade or other energy drink. So I'm gonna go get a big tank of Gatorade and put it in the gas tank of my Porsche because that will make it feel better and help it recover just the way I recover after I'm really exhausted from running. But of course, if you put Gatorade in the gas tank of your Porsche, not only will the Porsche not go anywhere, but you will eventually ruin it and it will be unable to do what it was made for. And that is exactly what we see happening with so much of the human race today, that we were made to run on God, as it were. We were made to have our souls fueled by God, by his Holy Spirit, by a relationship with Jesus Christ, and by the power of his word. And we try to run on the wisdom of the world, and we can't figure out why we're so depressed and unhappy. So as Lewis says, 
God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. He goes on to say that is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up, excellent institutions devised, but each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top, and it all slides back into misery and ruin. Remember, Lewis is writing at the height of Nazi power and a place where all that seems good and true in the world is literally being bombed out of existence. In fact, he says, the machine conks. It seems to start up all right and run a few yards, and then it breaks down. They're trying to run it on the wrong juice. That is what Satan has done to us humans. And what did God do? First of all, he left us conscience, the sense of right and wrong. And all through history, there have been people trying, some of them very hard, to obey it. None of them ever quite succeeded. Secondly, he sent the human race what I call good dreams. I mean those queer stories scattered through all the heathen religions about a God who dies and comes to life again, and by his death has somehow given new life to men. Thirdly, he selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was, that there was only one of him, and that he cared deeply about right conduct. Those people were the Jews, and the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process. Then comes the real shock. Among those Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. And this is the shocking alternative. Now let us get this clear. Among pantheists like the Indians who practice the Hindu religion, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God in their language meant the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. And Lewis goes on to the forgiveness of sins. One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we've heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, that is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you, hopefully at least. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? 
asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. And yet, this is the strange, significant thing. Even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him, not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. This is something that is unbelievably important for several reasons. It is absolutely important for the reason that Lewis is talking about, that no one except God alone can forgive sins. I mean, just imagine if you were an elementary school student going to class and one of your classmates was standing at the door of the cafeteria when people going, were going into lunch and as children came in, he looked at you and said, I forgive you of your sins. Well, that's crazy. He doesn't know what your sins are. He has no power to forgive them. It's ridiculous. And this is one of the chief things that people who are uh, casual and uninformed readers of the gospels miss because people still sometimes say, Jesus never claimed to be God in the gospels which is absolutely not true uh, and ridiculous. But one of the things that shows how ridiculous that is, uh, is particularly the story that you find in several of the gospels of the man who is paralyzed that Jesus heals. Remember that story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man? And the Pharisees are waiting to see if Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. And it says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Well, that's a whole nother discussion we're not gonna go into today. But he says, he looks at them and he says, what is easier to say to this man? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your mat and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. And the man got up and walked away from them all, and they were shocked and amazed. And right before that, what precipitated it all is that when they had finally gotten this paralyzed man to Jesus, lowering him down through the roof, Jesus looked at him instead of saying like a TV evangelist, be healed, he looks at the man and he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees immediately say, this man is a blasphemer. Who but God alone can forgive sins? The Pharisees understood when Jesus said that he was claiming to be God. And Jesus knew that they understood that. And that's why he shows the testimony to his power to forgive sins by healing the man 
right before their very eyes. So that moves us on to one of Lewis's most famous quotations, what's called Lewis's trilemma. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And this is one of the arguments that is used very often in apologetics about the Christian faith. Because many people will say, oh yes, Jesus was a great teacher, but just as Lewis says, but I don't believe he was God. And Lewis says, you can't say that because when you read the gospels, you will see that Jesus over and over and over again is claiming to be God. And the people that don't see that are just too ignorant of the terminology of the Old Testament and the scriptures to realize it. So anybody who was so fundamentally mistaken about who they really were certainly couldn't be a great moral teacher. If I went around telling people I was Napoleon and that I was going to go out and have France conquer the world today, you would think I was nuts. And you'd be right if I said that. And anything that I taught after saying those kinds of things, no one would pay any attention to. So what Lewis is saying here is that you have to take all of the evidence and consider it together. And it's so important that we understand what Lewis is saying here because our culture wants to fall into that moral teacher myth. And this particular uh, formulation of Lewis's, the trilemma, is a great way of exposing that. We're gonna talk a little bit about that later, but it's interesting that this trilemma shows up in other places. And it's not really original to Lewis. It goes all the way back to the patristic period of the church fathers um, in the third century. So in Narnia, Lewis uses the same argument and he puts that argument into an important scene in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. After Lucy and Edmund return from Narnia, Edmund betrays Lucy by saying they were just pretending and it was not real. And if you've read the book or seen the movie, you'll remember Lucy bursts into tears and there's a huge scene and uproar and much division. And Peter and Susan, the older children, don't know what to do because Lucy is the one who's always good, who always does the right thing, and they can't understand what is going on. And they're so worried about her since she seems to be acting irrationally and like a crazy person that eventually, they, with some trepidation, decide to consult Professor Kirk, the old professor in whose rambling old house they have been billeted as evacuees from London during the World War. And after some discussion with them, the professor explains as follows, 
logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies or she is mad or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies and it is obvious that she's not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. And as you can see, this is exactly the same argument that Lewis is making here in Mere Christianity. It's just put into a fictional context. So uh, if you wanna talk about Lewis's trilemma with someone who doesn't wanna read Mere Christianity or talk about God, just get them to read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and then you've got it there right at your fingertips. Another thing that you'll see in the Chronicles of Narnia is the white witch as a foil to Aslan and an exemplar of the argument. The white witch tells people that she is the rightful queen of Narnia and that all of the Narnians are her subjects and she deserves to be obeyed and loved and all of that. But when you poke at that story a little bit, you see that it is manifestly untrue. The more you learn about the white witch, the more you learn that she is a liar and a fraud and evil. Whereas with Aslan, the more that you poke at Aslan, the more you learn about him and see things about him, you become more and more convinced of his goodness and who he is. It is the same way with Jesus. The more that you study him, the more that you delve into his word, the more that you see that not only does he claim to be God, but he acts as the one person who actually fulfilled all of the law, who lived a perfect and beautiful and sinless life. So Lewis's trilemma has continued to be used particularly uh, in the past 50 years with great impact in Christian apologetics. And just, this is just a partial list of people impacted by this. Josh McDowell, who is famous for writing the original evidence that demands a verdict, um, was strongly influenced by this trilemma. The great Catholic philosopher and theologian Peter Kraft um, at Boston College describes the trilemma as the most important argument in Christian apologetics. Apologist and Anglican priest Nikki Gumbel, uh, who started the Alpha Course at Holy Trinity Brompton, um, has the trilemma as a major part of the first talk in the Alpha Course and in his book, Questions of Life. Ronald Reagan, perhaps an unlikely theologian, uh, used this argument in a letter he wrote in 1978 uh, to a liberal Methodist minister who said he didn't believe Jesus was the son of God. And you've got to love the fact that President Reagan set him straight using some C.S. Lewis. Bono from the rock group U2 has used a variant of the trilemma in talking about his Christian faith. Chuck Colson cited the Lewis version of the trilemma as the basis of his conversion to Christianity. Reading mere Christianity was what caused Chuck Colson, the famous Watergate lawyer, to convert. Noted New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger, who is arguably one of the top two or three New Testament scholars of the past hundred years, says this, it has often been pointed out that Jesus' claim to be the only son of God is either true or false. If it is false, he either knew the claim was false or he did not know it was false. 
In the former case, he was a liar. In the latter case, he was a lunatic. No other conclusion besides these three is possible. And then Bishop Robert Barron, who is a hugely popular Catholic evangelist, uh, who has, I think, the top podcast uh, under the title of Christianity and all the podcasts that there are, also cites this trilemma argument from Lewis in his work. So this is something that is a very important thing to get your head around, to explore, um, and also to get your head around the truth of the gospel narratives. One of the things that sometimes people poke at the trilemma about is they say, well, maybe another alternative is that Jesus was a legend because we don't really believe that those gospels are true. They were just made up about 100 years later, and Jesus might really not have existed. And if you've heard people say that, that was what people got taught sometimes in the 1960s, uh, even in seminary. Um, but there is so much evidence out there about Jesus and about the veracity of the gospels um, that that is really an untenable point of view. And Lewis's main point in the trilemma is to point people toward Jesus as the son of God, but by saying you can't just say Jesus is a good teacher, because if you say that, and he was just totally confused about who he was, um, you have undone all of his platform. So this is something that I would commend to you to go back and reread this chapter, um, to be thankful for the way that God has used that trilemma illustration to produce such good fruit of so many people's lives being changed. And Lewis is gonna build on this in the next chapter. So that gets us through uh, chapter three for tonight. So let's close by saying together uh, this last section from Mere Christianity. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed the very son of God, the only one who has led a perfect and sinless life, the only one whose teaching is backed up by the powerful example of your own life. Lord, we thank you that you are the very co-eternal Son of God, the word of life begotten before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand deeply in our hearts and minds and souls the truth of who you are, that we might have passion to share that good news with this broken world. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.